Open your Bibles, if you will, to, Matthew, to Mark chapter 7. We'll resume our studies of Mark's gospel at verse 24. We'll continue to verse 30. Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Mark writes, And from there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table may eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. May God be praised through the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. Father in heaven, we now pray your particular blessing as we study your word. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, bless him who speaks and those who hear. May Christ be exalted. May his truth find its place in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A valuable practice when reading a book of the Bible is to take the time to read the book in its entirety straight through, ideally in one setting. Now, there's some pretty big books on the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. That would take a long time. But, but as much as possible, it's good just to, just to read through it. Read the whole book. And, and a gospel like Mark is one where that is extremely valuable. You can read Mark in a single setting. Because what happens is the development of themes... And movements are often lost when we go passage by passage. We focus in. I'm a believer in focusing on our passage. But we need to keep in mind the surrounding context, the, the, the themes that are being developed broadly in the book. Now, a good example is our passage. Because if we read just chapters 7 and 8 of Mark's gospel straight through, we'll notice, for instance, that an awful lot of Jesus' ministry took place in conjunction with food. Chapter 7 begins with the Pharisees and scribes accusing him because his disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. Chapter 8 sees Jesus miraculously feeding another large group of people with bread. In between, a number of allusions are made to bread and food as he's making spiritual lessons. Well, it's no wonder that uh, the church today considers the potluck meal almost a sacrament. It's, It's not a sacrament. But so so often the case, it's in our regular meetings to meet our most basic needs that we begin to share our lives. We see that with Jesus. Now also when we focus in our passage on the conversation between Jesus and the Gentile woman who comes begging for help, we, we are reminded again, or we need to be, by what's going on more broadly in this portion of Mark. On this occasion, Jesus responds to the needy woman with words that would be deemed highly offensive today. He compares Gentile children to dogs who scavenge for food under the table. Not not good, Jesus. Really have used what today would be called such racist language that if you spoke like like that, you'd almost certainly lose your job. Is Is Jesus really doing that? Well, to understand the passage, we must remember that in Mark 7, Jesus has been making points regarding the clean versus the unclean. That's that's the broad theme in which this passage fits. Rightly understanding 
the difference between the clean and the unclean. And speaking to this woman, Jesus reminds her that there is a difference between Jews and Gentiles. At least at this point, Jesus has just come. He's not yet died on the cross and risen from the grave. There's a difference between Jew and Gentile. And it's not even primarily ethnic or cultural or social. It's redemptive. It's It's their relationship to God's saving plan. And the passage ends with a result that I think is even more provocative than Jesus referring to the woman and her daughter as dogs. The passage ends with Jesus healing a Gentile girl because of her mother's faith. And the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter are, on the one hand, examples of extreme uncleanness. We'll talk about that. And yet through faith in Jesus Christ, through faith alone, they receive the blessing of his salvation. By the end of the passage, these most unclean persons are made clean by the saving grace of Jesus received through faith in him. Well, Mark tells us that once again, Jesus sought to pull his disciples away from the crowds. Verse 24, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now, the city of Tyre was one of the most bitter ancient enemies of Israel. It was the source of the most blasphemous paganism. Jezebel had come from this region. If you know your Old Testament, that's a very wicked person. A lot of the most perverse idolatries came from this area. Now, he's probably not near the city of Tyre. Mark says he's in the region of Tyre. He's probably 20 or so miles northwest of Galilee, Jesus would, would leave the Jewish lands. It's actually historic Israel land. It's, it was originally the land of one of the tribes of Israel, but now it's mainly occupied by Gentiles. And it suggests here that his reason for that is he's seeking to put some distance between himself and his disciples and the conflict and controversy surrounding him back in Galilee, between him and the Pharisees, him and the Herodians who were out to get him. Uh, Mark notes in verse 24, he entered a house there. Jesus was seeking a spiritual retreat with his closest followers away from the crowds and the conflict. Now, this begins a brief foray of Jesus into the Gentile areas of Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis. This continues uh, to the end of the chapter, really. Jesus is in these Gentile lands. It's very interesting because while he's there, we ne- at no time do we discover him engaging in large-scale public teaching. Jesus departs from the land of Israel. He goes into these Gentile areas, and he doesn't call the people to him. Uh, and and that, that reinforces the idea that he'd gone there in order to retreat with his disciples. In fact, not long after this, you have the great confession of Peter. Jesus goes back there to uh, Caesarea Philippi, the same sort of area. He asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter, because Jesus has been ministering to him, he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so this is not a missionary trip, and yet... Isn't it remarkable that a Jewish Messiah should be there at all? What is the Messiah of Israel doing in Gentile lands? What's he doing in the house of a Gentile? Well, one thing he's doing, his immediate purpose is to get away from the conflict for a brief season. But it's also a foretaste of what is to come. It's scenes of what is to come because this gospel is intended ultimately not just for the people of Israel but for the world. R. Kent Hughes sees this as a beautiful prophecy that the gospel of Christ would be proclaimed to the Gentile world. 
And yet for now, Jesus' focus is on the Jewish people and especially on the training of the 12 disciples. But the problem is that even outside of Galilee, even away from where Jewish people live, he's simply too famous now to have any privacy. People have heard about what he's done and they've come streaming to him. And so it is that he enters a house in the region of Tyre and Mark says, verse 25, immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. The woman tells Jesus about her daughter's affliction. Verse 26, she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now, in the preceding passage, Jesus had rebuked the legalistic teaching of the Pharisees by pointing out that there actually are no unclean things. They taught if you touched the wrong thing, if you ate the wrong thing, if you didn't follow the right ritual, then these things would make you unclean. They would defile you before God. Uh, In verse 15 of this chapter, Jesus said, there's actually nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But now he's confronted with an unclean person. Not just an unclean thing, but a person who is unclean. If this woman had barged in, to a meeting of the Pharisees and scribes, they would have looked upon her as virtually the most unclean person they had ever seen in their life. She's a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. Now, now Gentiles were the aliens to God's covenant. They were enemies of God. Phoenicians, these are, Phoenicians are the seafaring people located mainly around Carthage, but there were a number of them in Syria, and they were such infamous pagans that James Edwards writes, even Levi the tax collector would have raised his eyebrow at this woman. That's pretty bad. To make matters worse, she'd been in close contact with a child who was demon-possessed. Now that rose her defilement to astronomical levels. So her place of residence, her ethnic background, her religious context, her demonic contact, they conspire to make her as unclean a person as you could possibly imagine. And yet at the same time, the woman was a desperately needy human being. It's an imperfect analogy, but we could compare her today to a mother whose daughter is in desperate need of medical treatment for a life-threatening ailment, or, or perhaps a parent whose child has fallen into great evil and they need somebody to intervene and to save. No wonder she fell at Jesus' feet and begged him. Her appearance at this point in Mark's gospel challenges us to consider Christ's relationship to the most broken, the most defiled people in our society. Oh, America has so many. We think of the effects of drug addiction. Uh, So many things going on. We see people living in the streets, and, and, and they're treated practically as the refuse of America. How does Jesus feel about the defiled? Well, if the world and its resources offer no hope to the urgently distressed, how will Jesus respond when they come to him? Well, it may seem to surprise us that Jesus does not, in fact, immediately offer aid to this Gentile mother. Instead, his first response is to speak the truth to her. It's the first thing he did. He spoke to her the truth, and he does so using language that seems awfully harsh to us. Verse 27, and Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
Now, Jesus' response notes the great difference between Jews and Gentiles prior to his coming. Jews were the people of God's covenant, and and they had a right to consider themselves God's children. And as such, they had a proper claim on the kind of blessings Jesus came to give, things like healing the sick and casting out demons, as he'd been doing in Galilee. But, But a Gentile woman like her and her daughter, they had no claim. On salvation blessings, R.T. France explains, bread here is an image for the blessing of the Messiah's ministry to his own people, that the children, it's the children's bread. It's the fulfillment of the covenant promises to Israel. You see, God had established covenantally an obligation that he would provide for the hungry, sick, or demon-possessed among his people. That's why during the exodus from Egypt, the people are hungry. He causes bread to rain down from heaven. The bread for his children falls from the sky in the form of manna. Now, it's true that these blessings could be and were forfeited through covenant breaking. And yet, in principle, the, the people of Israel possess a legitimate claim on God's compassion, but not this woman. And so Jesus informs her that what she's asking for was a blessing that belonged to God's people and not to these Gentiles who walked in darkness. Now this principle that God's blessings belong to God's children uh, continues today. Today it's believers in Jesus Christ who are the children of God. And, And therefore Jesus said things like this, John 16, 23, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And so over and over in the New Testament, we're encouraged. We need to pray to God because it's a throne of grace. God will receive us. His honor is bound up. We become his people. He's our Father. And so when we pray, he'll answer. Now, we may not like the answer. It may not be what we think is wise. He does think it's wise. But God will answer us when we pray. But no such promise was ever made to those who do not believe in Jesus, those who renounce him and do not live as his disciples. And so when unbelieving people, we know, they experience crises. Maybe there's a child who's desperately sick, like this Canaanite woman. On the one hand, it's only natural for them to pray to God for help. By the way, we should encourage them. I've been asked many times, is it right for unsaved people to pray? Yes, God deserves to be prayed to. He is the true and living God. He should be prayed to him. Christians will pray to the Lord for our unbelieving family and friends when they face a dire need. But sometimes we'll also be forced to inform them that the way that you know that your prayers are received graciously is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is those who believe in Jesus. It's the children who have the promise of the Father's bread. Well, Jesus goes further and he tells the woman, verse 27, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, that is, in fact, highly offensive language. Uh, In Bible times, dogs were not cuddly pets that people loved. No, they were reviled as, as unclean animals. They were scavengers. You didn't have a dog as your pet. Uh, They were roaming around town and and they'd be scrapping for food and they would be eating unclean carcasses. Uh, James Edwards points out that the Jews, in fact, frequently used this term to refer to the Gentiles. The Gentiles were dogs. It was a term of opprobrium for people judged worthless and dispensable. And so by 
associating this woman with dogs, Jesus is stating the grounds by which he would reject her plea. If we put ourselves in her shoes, uh, we might imagine taking our child to an emergency unit for a life-threatening illness, and, and they have the care available, but we're told it's not available for us. Oh, we have the care, but not for you. These blessings she needed were the children's bread and were not to be thrown to the dogs. Now, given the shocking implications of Jesus' words uh, that are regarded as rude and highly offensive in a way that we would not think that he would speak, many Bible teachers try to soften the blow. And the main strategy for making it sound not so bad is to point out that when Jesus speaks of dogs, he uses a grammatical form that's diminutive. It's, it's the way you talk about little dogs. And, and so the argument goes this way. Jesus is not offending her. He's not calling her a dog. He's calling them puppies. And who doesn't love a puppy? The puppy's under the table. Somebody calls you a puppy, that means you're cute and lovable. Everybody wants to hold you, right? And, and, and so the idea is that Jesus is not trying to offend her at all. There's a distinction to be made. He doesn't call her a dog. He calls her a puppy. Now, there's some problems with this view. One is that it is incorporating our views about dogs back into the ancient world where they did not hold anything like that view. The other problem is the kynarion, the the Greek word for, for dog is kion. Kynarion is, is the diminutive form. There is no evidence that that meant puppy. It actually meant smaller dog, which did not change the problem at all. Uh, it simply does not mean puppy. Uh, moreover, when you look at Matthew's account, generally speaking, when I'm preaching Mark, I try to stick to Mark. But we do want to compare Scripture with Scripture. And Mark, Matthew has a very interesting account of the same situation. And there, Jesus is even more offensive. In fact, in Matthew's version of it, when the woman comes, he refuses to speak to her at all. The woman comes and she begs for him, and he will not answer her. And then the disciples, predictably, they come to Jesus and say, can you get rid of her? This this pagan woman's bugging us. It's only after the woman comes uh, and and keeps pleading that Jesus then says to her that that, that he would not take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. uh, Matthew 15, 26. In Matthew's version... The rejection is even more explicit. And yet having pointed that out, because by the way, we don't need to police Jesus up. We don't benefit anyone if we soften what he's actually saying. And yet there are reasons to view Jesus' answer as something other than a refusal. One reason, remember, is that Mark is writing this gospel to Gentile readers almost certainly in the, in the city of Rome. It certainly wouldn't be very encouraging to their faith if they see an example, oh, by the way, if you're a Gentile, you're out. You're unclean. You're an unclean person. And that wouldn't serve his purpose of encouraging them to believe in Jesus. Uh, moreover, we remember that this context, Jesus is dealing with wrong legalistic ideas of defilement and uncleanness. And since he's been challenging these legalistic ideas about what is clean versus unclean, for him to reject this woman on purely legal grounds would seem to defeat his purpose. Now, a final reason and why we can really be sure that Jesus was not, in fact, intending to shut the door of his mercy before this woman, go back to verse 27, is his emphasis on the word first. So there, there's the key. It's not kinarian. It's not little dog. He's not saying cuddly puppies. No, it's dogs. But the word is first. 
that he says. Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You see, Jesus, therefore, was not saying that the blessings for which God sent him into the world, including the deliverance of the demon-possessed, that they were only for the Jews, but rather that they were for the Jews first. Jesus is emphasizing a priority in his mission and not ultimately a distinction between a Gentile and a Jew as persons. Jesus is acting on a redemptive historical priority that noted God's ancient covenant with the people of Israel. The Apostle Paul would write in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, a redemptive historical order. And Jesus so respects it. Now, as we read the gospel records of Jesus' life and ministry, we will encounter scattered instances of his saving blessing being bestowed on the Gentiles. This needy mother ends up being one of them. But they are only scattered instances. They are the exception that proves the rule. And the rule is that he came to the house of Israel. He came to the covenant people of God. It was after the Jews had rejected Jesus, he'd been crucified on the cross, then he rose from the grave, he ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit was poured out. It was then that the gospel went so powerfully among the Gentiles through the preaching of the gospel. As Peter said in Acts 3, 26, to the Jews, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Now, when we consider Jesus' answer then that the children must be fed first, we realize that he was not rebuffing the woman with a claim that she's too dirty, she's too unclean uh, to be tolerated. Rather, he's, he's pointing out that the time had not yet come for the gospel to be spread among the nations. That time was coming, but it had not yet come. It is not, the children's bread must first be given to them. Now, it seems clear that this is is exactly how the woman understood Jesus' words. Look at verse 28. With, With remarkable insight, she says, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now, she doesn't take any offense at all. Very remarkably, she takes no umbrage at Jesus calling her and her daughter dogs. Rather, what she does is she turns Jesus' answer to her own advantage by noting the implication of what he said. Surely, if Christ coming brought the bread of heaven to God's children, there would be some crumbs that would fall over and would impart blessing to a Gentile like her who prayed. She doesn't take any offense at the distinction between Gentiles and Jews. She doesn't argue that Jesus, Jesus claims that the ancient covenant people must be blessed first. But, but she points out, look, when the crumbs fall to the ground, that's not stealing, all right? They're not losing out. The the abundance is so great on the table, the children's bread, that things fall off. And is there anything? Is there a problem if the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table? And along those lines, she reasons with Jesus to be willing to deliver her daughter. Now, what an amazing reply that was! She overcame Jesus' reluctance, not only with persistence in prayer. This passage is often used, particularly the Markan version, where that's a little clearer there, that we need to persist in prayer. That's true, but that's not the main point. The main point is that she believed in the abundance of Jesus' saving grace. It was enough even for her. There was so much blessing and grace and forgiveness 
and salvation in Jesus Christ, that there would be enough for her. She believed it. And her reply to Jesus raises the question, what do you say when your conscience accuses you? And I know it does. Your conscience says to you, who do you think you are to be a Christian, to come to church, to to serve God? Someone dirty and useless and worthless like you. Of course, it's also Satan. We have numerous examples of Satan giving that accusation. And of course, there's truth to it. We are dirty and failures and broken and all these things. And our conscience says to us, us, who are you to even even think of coming to him? What's our answer to that? Well, it's the answer of the Syrophoenician woman. There is grace enough in Jesus for me. Think of John Newton on his deathbed. His memory was going. And he famously said, I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus Christ is a greater Savior. My friends, when you feel that you're unworthy or or somebody accuses you or your conscience or Satan afflicts you, that you're unclean before Jesus Christ, the answer is to plead the abundance of his grace. Come to Jesus. Believe in his grace. In the words of Julia Johnston, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of my sin. Well, it was essential to this woman's faith that she did not take offense when Jesus referred to her and her, her daughter as dogs. It was insulting, but that was not Jesus' point. Jesus' point was to speak the truth to her. What Jesus said was true. She was a Gentile. And they were not children with seats at the table. They were like the dogs scavenging beneath the traitor to the table. She was a stranger to God's covenant and promises. And the New Testament, as it speaks for Jesus, likewise has very hard and unpleasant things to say to us. And the things that it says are true. The Bible, for instance, plainly says that men and women are sinners. And in our time, that's almost as bad as calling someone a dog. The word sin's been barred from polite society. If you say to somebody, you're a sinner, they, they can't believe they've been talked to in such an insulting way as that. But you know what? It's true. And the Bible has worse things to say than that. Ephesians 2.1 says, if you don't believe in Jesus, it's because you're spiritually dead. You are by nature an object of wrath. That's what the Bible says. Ephesians 2.12 counters when people say you know god blesses everyone ephesians 2 12 says no he doesn't if you're outside of christ you're in the same situation as this syrophoenician woman you are alienated from the commonwealth of israel strangers to the covenants of promise without hope and without god in the world that is an unpleasant truth the bible teaches that apart from the saving grace of jesus we are not good in fact we are evil Romans 3.12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Now it is with respects to truth like these that unbelievers today stand before God like this Syrophoenician woman. We want God to help us. And when we're in severe enough need, we might even remember to, you know, say a prayer to the man upstairs, that kind of language. But the truth is, 
we, are, we have no claim to God's blessings. We have no right as guilty sinners to make requests of a holy God who holds us under judgment and condemnation. I wonder, do you, do you realize that that is true of you outside of Christ? As you stand before God, however desperate your need is, you have no claim on the things for which you plead. I wonder if you are offended to be told this truth from God's word. And when we take this perspective, I think then we understand Jesus' method with the Syrophoenician women. He, he, He speaks to her as he does as a challenge for her to confess her sin and to appeal to his grace. Jesus' words regarding the children versus the dogs, I think the right way to take them is as a parable. And the purpose of Jesus' parables is to challenge us to think differently about ourselves, to see things from God's perspective, to change the way that she understood her whole situation. I think this is why in Matthew's version, Jesus doesn't even speak to her at first. Why not? Why does he just bless her? Because there is a problem and it's real. Because there's a barrier and it's real. The barrier is sin before a holy God. It's the barrier of sin that required confession and forgiveness. This woman had barged into the home where Jesus was staying. She called on him to save her daughter. But the truth is she had no right to make that request. She was an outsider to God. She was a sinner before his holy presence. If Jesus was going to bless her, and he is going to bless her, the first step is to bring her to the confession of her sin. And it was for this reason that he referred to her using the word dogs. Now, for her part, the Syrophoenician women received Jesus' reproof very humbly. Doesn't raise her fist, doesn't demand her supposed rights. No, she acknowledges that it's true. As a Gentile pagan, she has no right to ask anything of God. Whatever information she lacked about Jesus, she knew this, that he had power to save. Power in such abundance that he wouldn't even miss the little scrap that came to bless her in her need. She realized he was the promised Messiah. He was worthy to be called Lord. Yes, Lord, she says in verse 28. Jesus had spoken the truth. She received it as truth. Starting with the truth that she had no claim on heaven's grace. But she also believed that he had saving blessing. It's in such abundance that there must be some for her. Well, Jesus' response to her answer, yes, Lord, she says, but even the dogs may eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And Jesus responds with delight. Verse 29, he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Now, the result highlights Jesus' sovereign power. Difficulty doesn't matter. Distance is of no, no difference to him. He, he saves her by his word. The woman goes home and the demon's gone from her daughter. But most importantly, Jesus did this fulfilling a promise 
that he had made even the outcast sinners. I, I just said, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a, a, a pagan, an unbeliever, there are no promises for you. No, there actually is a promise for you. And here's it is. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is the promise of Jesus to sinners. That is the promise of the God of grace to the unclean in the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Confess your sin. Cast yourself on his mercy. And here is the promise of God. You will be saved. We are saved by confessing our sin and appealing in faith to Jesus' mercy. Here's how Matthew, the same situation. Matthew has Jesus saying, O woman, great is your faith. Matthew 15, 28. And by that faith, she is saved. Now, just as Jesus spoke to about the children and the dogs as a parable designed to bring this woman to confession and faith, Mark records it for us with the same aim. You see, what we have here is a small picture of the great salvation for which God's Son came into the world. The truth is that we are all like dogs under the table with no right to claim any blessing from the holy God whom we have offended through sin. We do not deserve a seat at God's table of blessing. And the Bible is clear to tell us this truth. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve from God is judgment, condemnation, eternal wrath in hell. But because of his love... His great love, God sent his son Jesus into the world to die on the cross for the sins of those who believe. At 1 John 2, 2, says he is the propitiation for our sins. That means he makes the sacrifice that pays the debt of our punishment before God. He receives the wrath that we deserve in our place. We are forgiven through faith in his blood. And so the good news of salvation is that Jesus invites us to believe there is enough mercy in his atoning death for the sins of everyone who believes. 1 John 1, 9 promises if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, this Syrophoenician woman pleaded that just a few crumbs from the table would be enough to save her daughter, and we too. We must believe there is abundant blessing that Jesus possesses for salvation. And when we trust in him, what happens is actually more than we imagine in terms of the parable. It's not just that we get to eat crumbs from the table. When we believe in Jesus, he brings us to the table. Then God puts up a, pulls up a chair. We become God's children through faith in Christ, through union with Christ in faith. We become the children of God, and the bread is set for us, goodness and mercy beyond all imagining. And to make the good news even better, the Syrophoenician woman's blessing is for everyone. It's for anyone who believes. Yesterday at a funeral, I preached a message on John chapter 10 verse 9 where Jesus makes a great statement he says I am the door if anyone enters by me he will be saved now there's a promise for you what's the door leading to the sheepfold over which Jesus is shepherd it's the it's the entry into heaven after we die it's the entry into salvation and the grace and blessings of God and Jesus says if 
anyone enters by me. Clearly, he's referring to faith in him, confession of sin and faith in him. We will be saved. We believe in Jesus. We receive from him the right to eat the bread of heaven, not as dogs beneath his table, but as the children for whom it was given. John 1.12 says, To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. And when Jesus offers salvation to anyone, he means everyone who, like this Syrophoenician woman, accepts the Bible's teaching about the guilt of our sin, confesses that sin, but then trusts in Jesus for the grace that will save us. And anyone means a notorious sinner that, who has mocked God all his or her life and has flagrantly broken God's law. Yes, that, that anyone who believes in Jesus will be saved. Anyone means the quiet person who's never done anything particularly bad or noticeable, but who knows perfectly well that they've been a rebel in their heart, breaking God's law in so many ways. It means the person who's been living mainly for himself or herself, who's been casually using others, taking advantage of opportunities for sin. It, It means those who've dabbled with religion, who've toyed with the church, but have never given their hearts to Christ. Anyone means broken, desperate people who, like this Syrophoenician woman, have suffered the cruelty of this broken world, not to mention the consequences of our prior lives. But, but they come to Jesus seeking the mercy he has to give. My friend, if you are any of these people or, or any of the thousand other examples that might be given, if you are anyone, then you must hear the truth from Jesus about your sin. And if you will receive his mercy, trusting him in saving faith, he will be pleased in great abundance to save you. Well, Jesus had been teaching that there are no unclean things, food and objects, things we touch that make us refiled. None of that's true. But as he faces this desperate woman in her need, he notices that it is true. There may be no unclean things, but there absolutely are unclean persons. Why is that? Because of sin, because of the sin within us. It's the things within us, he says, that defile us. Sin makes us unclean before God. We think of the prophet Isaiah who said, we all have become like one who is unclean. Even our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, Isaiah 64, 6. You see, this is why any attempt to buy God off or to accomplish some quest or to measure up in some way and then he'll save us, it's all in vain. Isaiah says, it's not the worst of me that's unclean, it's the best of me that is defiled before God. Why? Because I am a sinner. But here's the good news. The gospel claimed that there certainly are unclean people, but Jesus came that unclean people would be made clean. That's what Jesus offers you. You feel the, the guilt, the, the shame, the defilement of your heart, and there stands Jesus Christ. And he came that the unclean would be cleansed. The Syrophoenician woman, she goes home, she finds the demon possessing her daughter. It's gone. She believed in Jesus. She had pleaded the abundance of his grace. If we will do the same, we will be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Whatever we have been, however stained and scarred by sin we may be, we just take up those beloved words of Charlotte Elliott in her great hymn, 
And we say to him, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou biddest me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come, just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. Father, I pray that we would all come. We thank you for the grace that is in Jesus. Of course, I pray, Lord, for those who've never been saved, that they would be saved right now, coming in simple faith to Jesus. But Father, cause us who are your people to understand the grace that's in Christ, that we have been cleansed of our sin and Unworthy though we are, we are your children and you feed us from your table. Father, make us zealous in prayer and in our witness to the gospel that people would know the great promise you've made to everyone, to anyone, that if we believe in the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. We pray in his name. Amen.